trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm so glad you could join me today. This is a program about people who take ownership for their worldview. That means we question the narratives. That means we we step out of the comfort zone. And trust me, I love the comfort zone. I want to be in the comfort zone, but nothing good ever seems to happen there. And especially when it comes to uh, understanding the world around us, understanding what what we could be doing to have impact. Well, um, I've learned through personal experience that uh, that does not happen when you're fat, happy and comfortable. (laughs) Okay, you can be happy outside the comfort zone, but I'm telling you the best stuff happens when you're actually striving to do something. So thank you for taking this journey with me. Thank you for considering that uh, maybe there's something of value that I can offer you in way of uh, things to consider about uh, what's going on in the world, what you and I could be doing to to make a difference. This is not about uh, creating the largest, most incredible listening audience in history. I'd like to believe that it's a message that the masses could really use, and I think they do need it. But the question is, uh, who really wants it? And the answer is, that's a pretty small number of people, but I'm thankful that you're one of them. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. I do two hours every day, Monday through Friday. I'm happy to be heard on a number of different uh, platforms, including terrestrial radio, podcast platforms, live streaming platforms. But I do what I do because I know there are people who are searching for a truthful, principled take on what's going on. And I want you to know I feel a very sacred uh, stewardship to to be careful, you know, in, in what I offer for your consideration, because I don't want to mislead people and I don't want to, to take people down a path that ultimately paints them into a corner. So thanks again for taking a chance. Our sponsors include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, MonticelloCollege.org, and LifesavingFood.com. In fact, I want to take a moment here and just tell you that if, if you have been thinking, wow, as unsettled as things are, as, as volatile as certain things seem to be in the world today, maybe I would be better off having you know some, some tools at hand to be able to assert my self-reliance. Food storage is a great, great way to do that. And I want you to know that if you order through lifesavingfood.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the coupon code code HYDE, H-Y-D-E. That's my last name. Yes, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. I mean, take a look at some of these different. uh, Here's a prepper pack, 52 servings, $89.99, a seven-day emergency dry bag. 60 servings of entree meals. That's just $99.99. I hope you'll click on the links in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com and just check it out for yourself. I'll thank you in advance for supporting my sponsors, and I appreciate that it helps to make this program possible. So let's begin, and I'm going to start on kind of a strange, no, a peculiar topic. Got an article in front of me from Annie Holmquist. When men say yes to the dress... See, this is when I start to really realize how, how big the, the generation gap has become. I look around at, uh, you know, these, these images of fashion, and, and more and more you're seeing guys in dresses. 
You combine this with all the gender bending stuff that's going on. It's like, okay, not my thing, but it sure seems like somebody wants wants us to, to make this front and center in our awareness. Annie Holmquist says, judging by the ads that show up on my computer, she says, I'm a prime target for women's clothing stores. Advertisers clearly know they can catch her eye with feminine dresses and skirts, but she says such feminine dresses quickly become unappealing when worn by those recently featured in a New York Times article entitled The Boys in Their Summer Dresses. Displaying an image of a tall, hairy-chested man wearing a strapless sundress accessorized with earrings, necklace, bracelet, and purse. The article discusses the trend of men ditching jeans and T-shirts to sport the skirts and dresses sold in the feminine clothing department. Now, Annie Holmquist says one might suggest that this trend is simply par for the course in an age of uh, queer gender transitioning individuals. And unfortunately, she says they would be right. However, this time, the trend of dress wearing men isn't limited to alternative sexualities. She says it's spreading to heterosexual males, demonstrating that Western society is truly becoming filled with weak men. Now, the Times cites the example of Eugene Rapkin, noting that while he pointedly identifies as cisgender and heterosexual, you know, in a more civilized time, we would have referred to that as normal. He has been buying women's clothing for almost 20 years. To me, there is nothing particularly feminine about them. The Times quotes Rapkin as saying, so he shops with his wife once buying a skirt that she had discarded in the dressing room. Now, Annie Holmquist says, for an average female like myself, such an admission is ghastly, and the image of a man in a dress, sickening. She says, many of my friends and I are left wondering how we somehow landed in a society where men want to co-opt our sex and the characteristics associated with it. She says, in answering that question, I'm led to consider the possibility that my own gender, or rather the ideology of feminism that supposedly represents it, created this problem with its demand for empowerment and equality. She says, once upon a time, our culture embraced the idea that the strong male head of a family protecting and providing for his wife of children and wife and children, that was the norm. The idea that men take the lead and women assist them in the journey of life, however, was anathema to feminism, which seemed to believe that the only way to lift women up was to tear men down. In fact, Alan Bloom describes this position, uh, this feminist position, well, in the closing of The American Mind. Quote, The souls of men, their ambitious, warlike, protective, possessive character must be dismantled in order to liberate women from their domination. Machismo, the polemical description of maleness or spiritedness, was the central natural passion in men's souls in the psychology of the ancients. The passion of attachment and loyalty was the villain, the source of the difference between the sexes. The feminists were only completing a job begun by Hobbes in his project of taming the harsh elements in the soul. End quote. But Annie Holmquist says feminism didn't just tear men down. Something needed to fill the void and send men in the other direction. And Bloom lays out the plan. Quote, with machismo discredited, the positive task is to make men caring, sensitive, even nurturing to fit the restructured family. Thus, once again, men must be reeducated according to an abstract project. They must accept the feminine elements in their nature. A host of Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep types invade the schools, popular psychology, TV, and the movies, making the project respectable. Men tend to undergo this re-education somewhat sullenly, but studiously. 
in order to avoid the opprobrium of the sexist label and to keep peace with their wives and girlfriends. And it is indeed possible to soften men. End quote. So the sight of men sashaying their way down the street in sundresses seems to suggest feminism has indeed succeeded in softening men. But even if men manage to resist these softening efforts, the lure of the feminine arises in other places, particularly the increasing special preferences given to women and minorities in every area of life. Such preferences leave men, particularly white males, on the sidelines. So there's nothing they can do to get ahead except to throw up their hands and join the ranks of the feminine. Now, given this, the, perhaps she says the cross-dressing trend shouldn't surprise us. But just because it's happening doesn't mean we have to accept it, nor does it mean we cannot push back. If women want men to leave the femininity to them, then women are going to have to reclaim it. Feminism has often taught women to reject their femininity, to adopt the aggressive, macho stance that men have been told to abandon. We've been told to leave the home behind, to take the lead in the corporate world and look the part by donning menswear and rejecting children. But she says, why not do the opposite? Women can readopt the gentle, caring nature that was once solely their domain. They can buck the trend and rediscover the delight of children and the joys of homemaking. They can even embrace feminine dressing, glorying in the skirts that men have somehow convinced themselves are a cool, masculine look. By the way, if it's not a kilt, <laughs> it's not a cool mascul- masculine look. Annie Holmquist says, we live in a crazy, messed up world where men are weak and dress like women and women are brash and dress like men. I would add to that even worse, they act like men. Annie Holmquist says, many of us are absolutely sick of this upside down scenario. Turning our world right side up starts with members of each gender re-embracing the traditional roles and practices of their respective sexes. That is the most sexist statement that I have read in a long time. And you know what? I absolutely love it. (laughs) I think she's absolutely right. It's so funny looking at family videos uh, from my wife's family. And this is her grandparents and how they came together, how they met the children they raised. Be my wife's parents, you know, the the grandchildren, the great grandchildren. You know, there's a pretty easy pattern to spot in what brought them happiness. And it was found in family, family with traditional roles. I know that seems terribly unliberated, but dang it, it worked. You can't argue with success. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Yeah, I know it sounds kind of bad, right? Oh, (laughs) why would I want to be a wrong thinker? Well, because there's value to owning your worldview. And especially when you live in a time where there is so much contradictory information circulating around and, and competing for your allegiance. Who do you believe? I'm not telling you that I've got all the answers and I'm the one who, you know, you can trust and nobody else. But I'm thankful that you give me a chance to at least share some of the things that I've found that that hopefully give some insight 
into what's happening and and challenge some of the dominant narratives. I have never I've paid attention for about the last 25 years. I've paid close attention because I have been a daily commentator. But I've never seen such a concerted effort to gaslight and otherwise just try to to turn reality on its head and to insist that, hey, 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 who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? But I see so much of it today. So thanks for, for sticking your neck out and taking a chance and and questioning these narratives. Speaking of which. This is the only segment I'm going to do on uh, on anything covid related in this hour of the show. But when it comes to avoiding the coronavirus, here's a question for you. Are you safer to just stay at home? Hunker down. I mean, this is what New Zealand actually one case in 170 days and they have locked the country down, told people stay in your homes. Do not talk to your neighbors. Oh, by the way, and they're enforcing it with police, with military. Whew. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to work great. Well, I've got an article here by Gerald P. O'Driscoll Jr. that has a surprising answer to that question of, are you safer to just stay at home? Mr. O'Driscoll says, with the new Delta variant, COVID-19 cases are increasing rapidly across the country. Now, he's talking about America. That's according to Johns Hopkins University, CSSE. These developments, he says, have led to calls for reimposing various mandates with veiled threats of renewed nationwide lockdowns. Now, previously on the American Institute for Economic Research dot org website, he had published a post demonstrating that policies like lockdowns, meaning shelter in place policies and social distancing guidelines were not only futile, but even counterproductive. And for now, the emphasis is on mask mandates. But he says it's worthwhile to further reexamine lockdown policies, lest there be more calls to reimpose them. He says KCB Mulligan examined the relationship between group size and private efforts to avoid infections. In response to the pandemic, authorities shut down most businesses, many schools and other places where crowds congregated. Now, this was done on the compelling theory that the disease would spread more quickly in such venues. The population was urged, in some cases, compelled to stay at home. That's shelter in place. Mulligan developed a model in which private rational efforts to prevent disease in organizations can make them safer than in one's home. Didn't New York City learn something about this? Didn't they say the vast majority of the cases, particularly through the holiday season, were spread between family members, not people going out in public, not people going shopping or otherwise attending public gatherings? Disease prevention is an industry whose organization is a topic especially suitable to economic analysis. So prevention has a cost, but also yields potential benefits in disease reduction. So organizations like firms monitor activities of their workers. Among other things, this monitoring manages local externalities and public goods. Individual efforts to reduce the spread of disease falls into these categories. And he says there are economies of scale in monitoring. Businesses, schools, and other organizations implemented protocols to slow the spread of COVID-19 that were rarely, if ever, implemented in households. Now, we're talking things like physical barriers, positive, assortive, assortative matching. That would be screening and quarantining in hospitals and limiting contacts. And, of course, social distancing. Masking was universal in all organizations that were studied. Some measures were specialized to certain industries like airflow control and filtering, like for airlines and hospitals. 
Hospitals and schools put workers and students in pods. The University of Illinois developed and administered its own COVID-19 test, and many of these protocols involve scale economies not available to households. Now, Mulligan presented some case studies. Duke Health System is a complex of hospitals and clinics in 10 counties in North Carolina, employing more than 21,000 workers. Six weeks after the implementation of the disease prevention protocols, work-acquired infection rates almost stopped, while cases continued in the outside community. An hour worked in the Duke Health System went from being more dangerous than an hour outside work to being more than three times safer. Food processors, which remained open as essential businesses, were notorious spreaders of COVID-19. Mulligan reported on a study of 11 meat processing plants in Nebraska. Before their mitigation protocols, employees were being infected at 15 times the rate of residents of other surrounding counties. After implementation of the protocols, the rate fell to approximately three times. And by the way, he footnotes all of this. So if you want to look, you want to do your due diligence, you can do so. Just go to the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Mulligan presented results of schools and school systems remaining open for in-person teaching. The infection rate for North Carolina schools was 23% that of the wider community. Children were safer in school than they were at home. On-campus students at University of Chicago were infected at a rate that was 9% of the city of Chicago. The bottom line of these and other studies brings into question that theory that keeping people apart is what protects them. Keeping them apart also keeps them away from prevention methods used by large organizations, but not generally by household. So simply put, home is where most people most often catch COVID-19. Mulligan quote quoted a 2020 study that households are high-risk settings for the transmission of COVID-19. He quoted a 2021 study that households show the highest transmission rates. And to restate the author's logic, large organizations are inherently more dangerous than households because they intermingle more people. But controlling those organizations typically implement those controlling those organizations typically implement protocols which reduce the risk of, of infection. In fact, in many cases. They can reduce the risk below that in thinly populated households. The reason that's possible is there are economies of scale in implementing such protocols, economies not available to households. Shutting down such enterprises amounts to an in-kind tax on disease prevention. So he summarized that for primary and secondary students and staff, infections were 20 times more likely to be traced to the community rather than to someone else in the school. COVID-19 prevalence among on-campus university students is much lower than it is in the broader population, and working in hospitals may actually be safer than staying at home. Now, none of these examples seem to involve government mandates. Entrepreneurial and managerial capital was deployed to discover disease-reducing techniques. Interesting, isn't it? They got results where, you know, mere government flexing on the people didn't. Scientific knowledge was certainly utilized, but the efforts were not the outcome of top-down mandates by scientific experts. So Gerald P. O'Driscoll Jr. concludes by saying, as further research into the actual effects of the widespread coercive policies implemented in the wake of the pandemic appears, one hopes that there could be a dispassionate reassessment of the policies. There was widespread agreement that we had to give up our freedoms to save our health. But he says, together, the papers I've reviewed in two posts suggest that actually more freedom leads 
to better health. Do you notice what he's saying here? None of this suggests, oh, you just want to throw your hands in the air and just give up. (laughs) Well, that's not going to work. That's not what he's talking about. Giving people good information, letting them choose what is the best approach for them. That seems to work well, as opposed to we will force you. We will make you do this because we know what's best. See, it turns out that we're, we're pretty good at uh, making the right decisions for ourselves. These one size fits all approaches always lead to conflict and, of course, always to a loss of freedom. You can find this article linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Take a look. He's got a lot of great uh, footnotes and other resources that you can click on. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Just a quick shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, Heather is located in St. George, Utah, but if you are one of the fortunate people escaping some major population center and finding yourself in the state of Utah, and particularly if you're home shopping, first of all, good luck. It's a hot, hot real estate market. If you find a home that you want to make an offer on, you've got to have your financing in place. So from VA loans to traditional loans, even to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the the decades of experience, the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need. And most importantly, without delay. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Her phone number is 435-703-4522. And if you're in St. George, you can stop by 619 South Bluff Street to visit the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You might even want to just drop them an email. I've got a nice little link there in the show notes where you could reach out to them and tell them, thank you for sponsoring this show. Well, I want to share a story with you that is, uh, this is kind of a source of irritation for me and has been for quite a few years, as soon as I became aware of it. And that is the uh, the concept of civil asset forfeiture. Now, you probably know this, or maybe you've heard this, but this just reaffirms anyone who travels with cash is taking a very big risk of losing it. Not to common thieves, but to government agents who behave like common thieves under the color of authority. I've got an article linked in today's show notes from C.J. Sierra Mella from Reason.com about a grandfather from New Orleans who lost his life savings to the DEA because he tried to take his money on a flight. And I'm going to actually play for you the audio from a short presentation from the Institute for Justice about this man's situation. Listen to this. When they seize my life savings, every penny that I've worked for, Every honest dollar that I earned over the last 25, 30 years, it made me feel like I was the dirt on the ground. Kermit Warren is a hardworking grandfather from New Orleans' Lower Ninth Ward. He's had lots of jobs, and for extra money, he also collects and sells scrap metal. I worked at the Port of New Orleans as a longshoreman. I worked as a contractor for the Corps of Engineers. I worked at world-famous Central Grocery, and now I'm currently working at the Roosevelt Hotel as the shine man. But now, 
the government is using civil forfeiture to try to take nearly $30,000 from Kermit without ever charging him with a crime. Kermit, like many of his neighbors, lost much in Hurricane Katrina. After Hurricane Katrina, I lost everything in my home. My home was destroyed. Oh, pictures, photos, appliances, cars. Kermit, who is the head deacon of his church, helped rebuild his community and diligently set aside money with every paycheck. I've always been a person who humbled myself and didn't go out and spend money unnecessarily. Once I paid my utilities, bought my groceries, I would save a couple hundred dollars per week. When COVID-19 hit, Kermit and his son Leo were laid off. Kermit decided to use his savings to turn his part-time metal scrapping job into a full-time business with Leo. To do that, he needed a bigger truck, and he thought he found one in Ohio. Would you take a cash offer? He said, sure. I said, I'll offer you 30,000 cash. He said, sure. I told him I'll be on the next plane coming to Ohio. Kermit and Leo flew to Ohio, planning to drive the truck back to New Orleans. But when they arrived, they saw the truck was too big for their needs. So they bought one-way tickets home. The TSA lady asked me what was in the bag. I I notified and told her that I had close to $30,000 cash money. Her supervisor told her that it was okay for me to travel with that amount of cash money. So they let me go through. I went and sat down to wait for my plane to come. Three DEA agents came to me and asked me, could they speak with me? So he didn't want to hear the story about me showing him the truck. He didn't want me to call the guy who I was buying the truck from. He said, we're going to confiscate your money. He said, we think y'all are up here doing something illegal. I said, man, you're just robbing me for my money. Civil forfeiture turns the presumption of innocence on its head. DEA doesn't have any evidence to charge Kermit with a crime, but they don't need to in order to keep his money forever. Unfortunately, civil forfeiture disproportionately affects racial minorities and the poor. Since they seized my money, it's been very difficult for me to provide for my family and my children and to pay the necessary bills that I need to pay. The Institute for Justice is fighting with Kermit to get his life savings back and to end civil forfeiture. If the government wants to permanently keep your property, it should have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed a crime. What happened to Kermit shouldn't happen to anyone in America. It was, it was my worst nightmare. I never knew my whole 58 years in, in, as a man in the United States that three DE agents could take a man's money from him that he worked for and not had committed any kind of crime or was arrested for doing any type of wrongdoing. How could they just take my money from me like that? Amen, bro. Wow. I mean, at least at least when you're dealing with a good old fashioned stage coach robber, they were very clear about what they were doing. It wasn't like, hey, we're just trying to make the world a safer place. No, they were just like stand and deliver. Give me your money or I'm going to shoot you. And of course, you would be justified in fighting back. You could shoot them dead if you had to, to protect your life and to protect your property. 
Not so when it's someone cloaked in authority and cloaked in, you know, the cover from the law. And the worst part about it is they accused his money of being suspicious. Well, speak up for yourself, money. <laughs> Why don't you explain exactly what you have been up to? Yeah, the money itself can't speak. And, of course, you know, they have little technicalities like, well, you know, a, a drug dog alerted on the money. I think it's a pretty well-established thing that uh, most cash in existence, has, in existence has some trace amount of cocaine or other drugs. Now, that doesn't mean that, therefore, they should be taking everybody's money. It just means that, you know, occasionally bills will pass through the hands of individuals, perhaps using controlled substances. Where is the proof on the part of government, though, that this man did anything wrong? It's not there. And I'm grateful for organizations like the Institute for Justice. They're currently litigating a separate class action lawsuit on behalf of people whose cash was seized by the DEA at airports. In fact, one of the lead plaintiffs in that case, Stacy Jones, had $43,167 in cash seized by the DEA as she was trying to fly home to Tampa, Florida from Wilmington, North Carolina. Jones says the cash was for the sale from the sale of a used car, as well as money she and her husband intended to take to a casino. One of the other plaintiffs in the lawsuit, Terrence Rollin, a 79-year-old retired railroad engineer, had his life savings of $82,000-plus seized by the DEA after his daughter tried to take it on a flight out of Pittsburgh with the intent of depositing it in a bank. Now, if there's some good news, this is, par- this is probably the best news you're going to hear. After that case went public and there was noticeable outrage, the DEA returned the money. In fact, they also agreed to return the cash they seized from Jones, But the Institute for Justice argues the DEA and Transportation Security Administration's practice of seizing cash from travelers at airports violates the Fourth Amendment. I think they're right. Look, I'm not trying to suggest that criminals should be able to just, you know, get away with whatever they do. But I don't care who it is. I don't care if it if it looks suspicious. Well, this guy had a quarter of a million dollars cash in the trunk of his car. And he says, I don't know who that belongs to. I'm sorry, government, but your job is to afford due process to every individual that comes in contact with you. And however suspicious it may seem, if you can't prove or if you can't show probable cause exists that this was part of a crime, or if you can't give some reasonable, articulable suspicion that we had to look for this money because, you know, we knew that somebody was carrying. I mean, in other words, in other words, if they can't point to evidence that really would point to wrongdoing, something that would hold up in a court of law. They need to keep their dang hands to themselves. Otherwise, they are little more than thieves dressed in a little bit nicer clothing. The DEA's practice of see money, seize money, counts on people's inability to navigate the maze of civil forfeiture proceedings in order to get their property back. That's according to an Institute for Justice attorney who says the government shouldn't be able to keep a person's life savings without a related criminal conviction. But people like Kermit are essentially forced to prove their innocence just to keep what they worked so hard to earn. And law enforcement agencies use that money to pad their own policing budgets. This abuse has to end. And the good news is it has ended, at least on the state level. But guess what? The feds still love it, still embrace it. And sometimes they give local law enforcement room to do an end run around those prohibitions on taking money from people who have been accused of no crime whatsoever. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, I've saved I've saved something fun for this final segment of this hour. Yes, you can liken it to dessert. Although sometimes I have a tendency to skip right to dessert at the very beginning of the meal. You know, while I still have room. Nonetheless, if you're not familiar with Ambrose Bierce, you are missing out on getting acquainted with a truly great mind. Jim Bovard has a terrific column on Bierce's way with words and his ability to cut through the rhetorical smokescreen that politicians hide behind. Now, this is of particular interest to me because I'm, I'm a bit of a wordsmith myself. I love to write. I love to speak. I love people who can turn a memorable phrase. That's, that's where my admiration goes. And so um, I like to encounter great minds. I aspire, you know, to develop my mind and my vocabulary to be one of those people. Ambrose Bierce definitely, definitely is, is one of those individuals that can make you think. And maybe have some fun along the way. James Bovard says, The friends of freedom must recognize the verbal charades that sway people to surrender their rights and liberties. The political establishment and its media allies are constantly abusing the English language to lull people into submission. From pupils being required to recite the Pledge of Allegiance at the start of each school day to adults being endlessly heckered to vote, hectored to vote, Americans are injected with demands for obedience almost from womb to tomb. It's not enough to obey. Americans are supposedly obliged to view the current regime as the incarnation of the will of the people. Journalist and author Ambrose Bierce offered a barrage of antidotes to this servile claptrap, writes Jim Bovard. Many people are familiar with Bierce's definition of a cynic, a blackguard whose faulty vision sees things as they are, not as they ought to be. <laughs> but Bierce's writing had a much sharper political edge than is usually recognized nowadays. H.L. Mencken commented that Ambrose Bierce was the one genuine wit that America had produced as of the early 1900s. Mencken summarized Bierce's career, doomed to live in a country in which, by God's will, honesty is rare and courage is still rarer and honor is almost unknown, he fell upon the mountebanks, great and small, in a berserker fury, thus to soothe and secure his own integrity. That integrity, as far as I can make out, was never betrayed by compromise. Right or wrong, he always stuck to the truth as he saw it. So if you don't know much about Ambrose Bierce, James Bovard says few American writers have punctured more political pretenses than he did. Bierce was a Union officer in the Civil War, almost died from his wounds at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in 1864. His short stories offered a joltingly realistic view of the pervasive death and folly in almost every battle. Bierce's biggest contribution to starkly perceiving political reality was The Devil's Dictionary, first published in 1911. Mencken said that book contained some of the most devastating epigrams ever written. Bierce offered plenty of, in, of piercing insights that can be profitably studied by today's Friends of Freedom. We'll give you some examples of that here in just a moment. Bierce defined politics as a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles. The conduct of public affairs for private advantage. 
That's pretty spot on, wouldn't you say? His definition of a politician was even more scathing. An eel in the fundamental mud upon which the superstructure of organized society is reared. As compared with the statesman, he suffers the disadvantage of being alive. (laughs) He defines sorcery as the ancient prototype and forerunner of political influence. Similarly, he defined degradation as one of the stages of moral and social progress from private station to political preferment. Now, Bierce's definition of freedom was sounder than that offered by most political philosophers. Exemption from the stress of authority in a beggarly half dozen of restraints, infinite multitude of methods. And he followed that definition with a brief poem. Listen to this. Freedom screams whenever monarchs meet, and parliaments as well, to bind the chains around her feet and toll her knell. And when the sovereign people cast the votes they cannot spell, upon the pestilential blast her clamors swell. For all to whom the power's given to sway or com- or to compel, among themselves apportion heaven, and give freedom hell. Jim Bovard says Bierce failed to swoon for the tub thumping for democracy that was sweeping America in his time. For instance, see his definition of vote, the instrument and symbol of a free man's power to make a fool of himself and a wreck of his country. Bierce defined referendum, a law for submission of proposed legislation to a popular vote to learn the nonsensus of public opinion. In his definition of multitude, he commented, a multitude is as wise as its wisest member if it obey him. If not, it is no wiser than its most foolish. He defined rabble. In a republic, those who exercise a supreme authority tempered by fraudulent elections. Luckily, we don't have to worry about that happening nowadays in the United States, says Jim Bovard. And he had as much, if not more, contempt for monarchy. Prerogative was merely a sovereign's right to do wrong. In his definition of absolute, he observed, an absolute monarchy is one in which the sovereign does as he pleases, so long as he pleases the assassins. That parallels his definition of abdication, an act whereby a sovereign attests his sense of the high temperature of the throne. Now, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, during Bierce's heyday as a journalist, protectionism was ascendant, and politicians perpetually lied about the benefits of closing America off from the world with high tariffs. Bierce provided one of the best definitions of a tariff, a grand, uh, rather, a scale of taxes on imports designed to protect the domestic producer against the greed of his consumer. Wow. He complimented that with an apt definition of harbor, a place where ships taking shelter from storms are exposed to the furies of customs. I'm going to skip ahead. He's got a few other things here. Uh, His definition of boundary in political geography, an imaginary line between two nations separating the imaginary rights of one from the imaginary rights of the other. To comprehend political mischief of such lines, check his definition of canon an instrument employed in the rectification of national boundaries. (laughs) Here's how he defined a rebel, a proponent of a new misrule who has failed to establish it. That uh, echoes the judgment of Napoleon, who declared treason is a matter of dates. So here's a couple other, there's just several one-liners on some other topics. These are a few of Ambrose Bierce's best. Positive, adjective, mistaken at the top of one's voice. (laughs) I'm sorry. These are so good. Hurry. Noun. The dispatch of bunglers. Impiety. 
noun, your irreverence to my deity. Zeal, noun, a passion that goeth before a sprawl. Truthful, adjective, dumb and illiterate. Rum, noun, gener- generically fiery liquors that produce madness in total abstainers. <laughs> Ghost, noun, the outward invisible sign of an inward fear. This one's a good one, too. Prophecy, also a noun, the art and practice of selling one's credibility for future delivery. Patience, also a noun, a minor form of despair disguised as a virtue. Saint, a dead sinner revised and edited. Another terrific one here. Self-evident. Adjective. Evident to oneself and to nobody else. (laughs) And finally, urbanity. Noun. The kind of civility that urban observers ascribe to dwellers in all cities but New York. Apparently, the New Yorkers had a dubious reputation even 100 years ago, says Jim Bovard. So his point in sharing this is he says, look, freedom fighters need all the comic relief they can find. The laughs that Beers delivers are combined with lines that pierce perpetual political frauds now more than ever. He even has a link to where you can find Beers's Devil's Dictionary, and, and it's available for free. So if you've, if you've been looking for something, you know, to snack on intellectually or maybe even to sit down to a, a buffet or a, a meal of, this might be a good choice. Because of this, I will thoughtfully include in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are show notes for August 18th, 2021. A link to uh, Jim Bovard's article, Ambrose Bierce's Pro-Freedom Cynicism. I know there's a lot to be cynical about these days, but uh, I can honestly say there's very little going on that can't be brought down to a manageable size through the ability to laugh or to find some kind of humor. And I'm so grateful for those who can do this. I know I'm not the only person who right now struggles. I'm not the only person who questions my own sanity from time to time because I can't believe some of the things that are happening. I can't believe the stand that many of us are being forced to make and and the irrationality that dominates so much of our society and especially so much of our political discourse. So if you feel like you've been taking crazy pills, you're not alone. But let's find some time to find some humor in the situation and maybe uh, exercise our brains in some other ways, some non-traditional ways. This is The Brian Hyde Show.